Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler and you're listening to Volume 1, The Prehistoric World. This is Episode 13, Paleolithic Art and Ritual. Let us explore previous references to art and ritual in our previous podcasts and see what sense we can make of them and what other instances of these subjects we can find within the prehistoric study of the world. During episode 6 regarding prehistoric speech and language we discovered engraved shells possibly created by Java Man, a Homo erectus discovered in Trinil on the island of Java in the modern country of Indonesia. We believe that this could have been around half a million years old. During both episodes 9 and 10 on the first Homo sapiens, we discovered that humans were creating shell beads, possibly a jewellery item. These were being created in the caves of Israel, but also South Africa. Some of the Israeli discovered beads date back over 100,000 years. Some of the beads were decorated with red ochre. Red ochre is something that we have also discovered in previous episodes. Not only was it used to decorate items such as shell beads, but it was also used in symbolic burials, such as the Red Lady of Paviland, which we talked about in episode 11. What does all of this mean in terms of our general story? Let us try to put this all in some chronological context and try to uncover the reasons behind it all. Leisure time. Homo sapiens were such a successful animal that they were able to spare some time where their intelligence and self-consciousness was able to unavoidably contemplate who they were. Humans needed an outlet to be able to express themselves and they would have used art as one of those outlets. With all of their cognitive ability, it must have been very important to be able to occupy their time in such a way that they could stretch their imagination. Carving shapes into bones and shells was either for practical purposes or just a display of intelligent boredom. It is difficult to speculate why Java Man would have carved geometric lines onto the surface of shells, but we don't find an awful lot else of this age range which resembles anything similar. As we speculated before, could it have been to identify the ownership or purpose of the shell? Ochre is a naturally occurring combination of clay and sand which can appear different in colour according to the amount and type of material found within it. For example, if the ochre contains a good amount of haematite, a naturally occurring iron oxide mineral, then the ochre will appear red in colour. 
There is evidence from a cave at Twin Rivers near Lusaka in modern-day Zambia that grinding tools were being used to create pigments from these ochres which may have been used to create body paint. These tools could date back as old as 400,000 years and the body paint may have been used for the same reason that a shark's teeth or eagle talons were modified to become part of a necklace. The purpose being to identify yourself as a member of a tribe and possibly to represent your tribe as superior to your neighbouring tribes. All pure speculation but not unrealistic as a suggestion. Red ochre itself could have been used together with plant resins to create coloured paint and it is not clear when humans first started using this. Certainly we can reference Blombos Cave in South Africa which we discussed in episode 9 as a site where ochre was being used quite extensively. Although we have struggled to find much evidence of plant resins and tars, we do recognise that humans there were going to great lengths to work their ochre to produce pigment of quality which they appeared to be using to decorate objects such as shell beads and even cave walls. This practice could have been taking place there as long as 100,000 years ago and showed a clear cognitive ability for purposeful and planned chemical creation. South Africa So, we have referenced the artwork and materials from previous episodes, so let's look at what else we can discover that is over 50,000 years old that can paint a picture, to coin a phrase, of the human capability for creativeness in its initial stages. Certainly, we cannot discount that the first engravings and pigments may have been created previous to Homo sapiens, which discredits the long-standing theory that art is restricted to Homo sapiens. Art, like most other subjects in this podcast series, is something that has slowly emerged before blossoming, the same as tool creation, speech and language, bipedalism, and fire use. Our lesson is that we should stop trying to definitively date innovation and start accepting its slow and steady emergence. Hominins were so widespread that cultural changes are likely to have emerged in one or more isolated cases and then slowly spread from tribe to tribe, becoming more widespread over a long amount of time. If we go back to Blombos Cave in South Africa, we can discover blocks of ochre with geometric shapes engraved on it that date to over 100,000 years old. From the same cave we discover beads made from shell that date to around 75,000 years old. What we specifically mean by beads is that the shells have had holes purposefully bored into them to enable them to be threaded possibly to become part of a necklace or a bracelet or a clothing decoration. Traces of ochre suggest that they were also colourfully decorated. Moving on to the deep cloth rock shelter in the Western Cape province of South Africa, we stumble across some very interesting ostrich eggshells. These eggshell fragments, of which there are over 250 pieces, 
are coloured and engraved with geometric patterns such as crosshatches. They are thought to date back around 60,000 years and show a very advanced ability to artistically decorate with a very deliberate desire to be eye-catching. What those who have studied these eggshells have suggested is that this may not just be artwork for the sake of it, but that it is possible that the art was to represent ownership of the shell as the shells were likely to have been used as liquid containers. A good ostrich shell could carry a litre of water. Very useful in an age without glass bowls or bottles. Europe. To really see the progress of art on a much more progressive level, we should visit Europe. Firstly, let's go back to Gorham's Cave, a site which was introduced right at the very start of episode 7 about the Neanderthals. Many artefacts of the Mousterian tool culture were recovered there, and it is for this reason that we associate Gorham's Cave as one of the last residences of the Neanderthals. Gorham's Cave also contains parietal art, which is a fancy word for artwork on cave walls. The art is in the form of engravings, clearly deliberate and quite geometric. Now, this opens up an argument, as it is believed that this kind of art is exclusive to Homo sapiens. So what is parietal art doing in a Neanderthal cave? Is it possible that Neanderthals were responsible for the art? There is a standing against this theory. It is quite possible that Homo sapiens moved into the area after the Neanderthals abandoned it and created the art for which is traditionally better attributed to them through examples of similar kinds of work, especially present at the South African sites mentioned earlier. In contrast, there are no other instances of similar artwork that can be attributed to Neanderthals. However, we should not be too quick to be dismissive of Neanderthals being incapable of producing such artwork due to the fact that hominin species were quite possibly engraving objects as far back as 500,000 years ago and we must assume that their intelligence was more advanced than that of Java man, who may have been responsible for the first engravings. At the opposite end of the Iberian Peninsula, at the cave of El Castillo in modern Spain, we can see the emergence of a completely different kind of cave wall art. This time, it is not engravings on the stone wall, but humans were using red ochre to make hand stencils. So they must have been putting their hands against the wall and then using the ochre to create an outline of the hand. They are thought to be around 37,000 years old. This is one of the earliest instances of hand stencils, but the fascinating thing about hand stencils is that the one other instance that dates to this age that we know of is 8,000 miles away on the island of Sulawesi in modern-day Indonesia. It is very difficult to find a convincing expert opinion as to why people started creating hand stencils and how it seems to have emerged 
in unrelated parts of the human world at around the same time, but it doesn't appear to be gender or age sensitive, with all members of the tribe seemingly involved. If we move to the Grotta di Fumani in the north of Italy, we can see more cave art of a different kind which dates back to 35,000 years ago. This time it is figurative art in the form of a weasel-shaped animal created with red ochre among other bizarre figurative imagery. However, this leads us into a completely different kind of figurative art which opens up a completely new avenue of thought for us. Sculptures. The Lion Man of Hollenstein Stadel is an ivory carving sculpture. It is an upright standing figure with a lion's head. Now, no animal that looks like this has existed to our knowledge, so it's certainly a very abstract creature. It was discovered in a cave in the Hollenstein mountain in the south of modern Germany, in the Swabian Jura mountain range. The ivory was the ivory of a mammoth tusk, and the sculpture stands at around 11 inches in height. There does appear to be a figure painted onto the wall of the aforementioned Grotta di Fumani that resembles a man with a horned mask so some have speculated that the lion head on the sculpture represents a mask. One theory attached to these strange anthropomorphic figures, that is, an animal having human features, such as the lion with an upright human body, is that these figures are related to shamanism. In modern society, our understanding of shamanism is that a shaman is a chosen one. So this could relate to the origins of a kind of spiritual and maybe even religious belief. A shaman is somebody who is believed to have had a connection with the spirit world. So somebody that could connect the living with their ancestors. A shaman is also believed to have been able to tell the future and even heal the living. Could members of these prehistoric European societies felt it necessary to include such individuals in their tribes? And were they a direct influence on these bizarre works of art? Another type of sculpture which emerged in Europe at a similar time were the Venus figurines, which were sculptures of human females, the breasts and buttocks of which were often enlarged. We can find one of the earliest examples of a Venus figurine in the Swabian Jura mountain range, which is the same range where we discovered the Lion Man sculpture. The sculpture is called the Venus of Holler Fels, named after the cave in which it was discovered, and once again carved from mammoth ivory. The one thing we notice is that the Venus has a very broad body with prominent breasts, buttocks and genitals, a somewhat common feature of many contemporary Venus figures. It is however notable that very little attention is given to the hands and feet, and in this particular case, the head is missing. 
In many other figurines that do have a head, the face is not detailed, so the individual identity appears to be unimportant. What can all of this mean? Well, it does appear that the exaggerated features of the Venus are often the sensual and sexual features of the human female, and this directs us towards fertility and reproduction, which further directs us towards the fascinating wonder of the production of new life. It must have been as emotionally stirring to the humans of prehistoric times as it is to us today that we can bring new human life into the world to continue our legacy. So this must have had a profound effect on the human mind. Maybe this can link us back to shamanism and those chosen ones who can predict the future. Could the shaman have instilled the belief into his tribe that these fertility symbols were helpful in the process of successful reproduction? Venuses were created throughout the Upper Paleolithic period, which pretty much covers the period from which Homo sapiens became widespread throughout Europe around 40,000 years ago, right through to the Agricultural Revolution about 10,000 years ago. They were made from ivory, bone and stone, and could appear to be made with the purpose of being an amulet or a pendant, which could explain why a ring appears in place of the head on the Venus of Holofels. In some cave paintings, a male figure, possibly a shaman, is surrounded by multiple Venus-like female figures. Could this be another indication of fertility and reproduction where the male is tasked with the duty to procreate and the females are the producers of life with which he has to fulfil his duty? Perhaps it may be that it is the shaman's duty to bless the females with an ability to succeed in their own duty to produce a healthy new generation. The Chauvet Cave Paintings The paintings on the wall of the Chauvet Pond Dark Cave in the Ardèche department of modern-day France are impossible to not mention in a podcast about prehistoric art. It is named after Jean-Marie Chauvet, who was one of three speleologists who discovered the cave in 1994. Speleology is the general scientific study of caves. The cave is astonishing due to its age and due to the sheer amount of paintings to be found on the cave walls and some of the archaeological evidence in the cave of activity and occupation. It deserves a more detailed analysis. The earliest paintings date back to around 32,000 years ago. Alongside some of the animal images that are quite commonly found in cave art from this, the Aurignacian period, which is also the name given to the tool technology of these European Homo sapiens, such as horses, bison, oryx and ibex, just to name a few. There are some more unusual animals. The aforementioned animals would have been hunted for their meat quite commonly, which is possibly why we are not surprised to see these in cave paintings, and indeed we normally do. However, 
Chauvet also contains paintings of lions and rhinoceroses, which we normally wouldn't consider to be hunted animals. Its subject matter can be compared to the contemporary sculptures of the Swabian Jura, such as the Lion Man of Hollenstein Stadel. We will come back to this later. The paintings were made using red ochre and also charcoal and were created with skill, the likes that we have not seen before. The animals are easy to recognise so the artists had an excellent ability to recreate the images in their minds. They used shading techniques for effect showing a real ability to make the imagery more lifelike using artistic techniques that we would consider to be modern. Some of the imagery depicts animals such as rhinoceroses confronting each other. Another interesting image shows an image of a creature, half man and half bison, clearly attending a woman's pelvis with detailed genitalia. So when interpreting the meaning of the subject matter of the cave paintings, we could very well be pointed back towards ritual ceremony and shamanism. Some indigenous societies have a belief system which modern scholars called animism. This can very likely come in many forms, but in the most general sense, it alludes to the belief that everything has a spiritual essence. With this in mind, maybe the artists at Chauvet not only believed that they should pay respect to the animals which they hunted, but also to the wider animal kingdom. It's a bit of a long shot, but scientists are genuinely struggling to understand the motivation behind these paintings. If Aurignacian peoples were believing that a shaman should be invited to encourage successive fertility, then it would make sense that there would be a similar attitude in ritual attention to hunting in order to encourage success in that respect too. Whether there is a wider ritual consideration to all things is probably suggested due to the ancient religious nature being that of polytheism, worshipping multiple gods of different natural phenomena. We could talk for an entire podcast episode about the contents of the Chauvet Pond Dark Cave, but due to our desire to keep the story moving forward and to try to encompass as much about prehistoric life as possible, I want to make reference to some of the footprints discovered in the cave. We recognise that the cave was possibly occupied by humans on more than one occasion, and we can see that paw prints of bears are also present. It is very doubtful that humans occupied the cave at the same time as the bears, but we do see the footprints of a young child walking alongside a wolf, side by side. Could the wolf have been a friend to the boy? If so, is this one of the earliest evidences of wolves becoming tame around humans and beginning their evolution towards becoming the domestic dog? We will explore domestication of flora and fauna in more detail in the upcoming episodes. Nonetheless, the cave paintings at Chauvet Pond Dark are just one 
example of very many examples of cave art across Europe. But we should not proceed without mentioning the emergence of cave art in far-off Australia, which began to emerge almost simultaneously. There can be no way that the artists of Europe were in any way connected to the artists in Australia due to the sheer distance, but it does indicate that art may have developed slowly with Homo sapiens and that the process of abstract thought and expression must have existed within Homo sapiens from their African roots and they carried it with them as they migrated around the world and developed it in their eventual settlements independently. It has been troublesome to put an initiation date on Australian rock art, but it is thought to be at least 30,000 years old. The site is Ubir in the Kakadu National Park in the Northern Territory of Australia. The art is unsurprisingly considered to be the work of Aboriginals and rather intriguingly depicts both humans and animals, staying within the trend of subject matter for prehistoric art. Portable art. The tradition of cave art and Venus sculptures continued for thousands of years with differing styles and techniques as times and locations changed. The cave and rock artwork was static and we refer to it as parietal art, whereas the sculptures could be taken with you, hence the name portable art. We have discussed engraved shells found at Java, possibly made by Homo erectus, which if correctly identified and authentic would represent an early form of portable art. The sculpted statuettes and Venuses are yet another form. However, there is one form of portable art which is now going to have a very practical purpose, the atlatl. Atlatls started out purely as a tool for propelling spears through the air at a higher speed and with less energy than the arm. Imagine those ball throwers that many dog owners now have and it's exactly the same principle. Although it may well be the case that humans were creating these implements 30,000 years ago or earlier, the designs of those found after 20,000 years ago took on a completely different approach. Some were ornately carved with images that would describe a sequence of events, while others were carved to resemble animals. Maybe it was imagined that such carving would enhance the success of the hunt by bringing some spiritual influence in the way that we have described, with previously mentioned instances of art having influence over fertility and hunting. Over in China at around the same period within the last 20,000 years, we see another practical object being subject to artistic influence. Clay-fired pottery was previously only thought to have existed in the last 10,000 years after the agricultural revolution. However, fragments have been discovered in places such as Dong Cave in the Jiangxi province of modern China. They also display evidence of artistic decoration with the clay being imprinted before being fired. However, if we go back to Hollow Fells 
the cave in the Swabian Jura in the south of modern Germany, the same place that we discovered the Venus of Hollefels, we have discovered something else of particular interest that dates right back to 35,000 years ago and it opens our story up to a completely different aspect of art. It is the bone of a bird and on one side of the bone at regularly spaced intervals down its length are holes. It is a prehistoric flute and our first example of prehistoric music creativity. The very earliest example of a prehistoric flute can be found at the Diwiababi Archaeological Park in Slovenia. It is made from a bear's bone which has some considered circular holes made on one side. It dates back possibly 43,000 years and it is presented as a Neanderthal flute. While this is not impossible, there is every reason to question this as the time frame does coincide with Homo sapiens emergence in Europe and the flute making does seem to be more of an Aurignacian culture creation. The, the cultured, cultured human, human being. being. We are now starting to get a real feeling about the upper Paleolithic human being becoming a creative animal. And whilst we could have gone into so much more detail about the examples and indeed other examples of upper Paleolithic art, we must press on and try to interpret what all of this means about us and our self-consciousness. It is probably fair to say that prehistoric art was not meant to be purely for aesthetical purposes, but that there was a deeper spiritual meaning to much of it. This is not just wild speculation, however. We previously discussed spirituality and how that would seem like a reasonable assumption based on the strangeness of some of the artwork and creations not being an essential survival instinct, and then further to this, comparing this behaviour to the modern behaviour of today's people who still live a very basic tribal existence and their spiritual practices and beliefs. We briefly touched on the compassionate side of Neanderthals in episode 7 and how they cared for the less useful members of their tribe, such as the elderly and the disabled. We also recognised that they were carefully burying their dead. We spoke in the same episode about the mass burial at Cima de los Huesos of a number of hominins. What about more recent burials? Discoveries have uncovered a significant number of burials that date from 40,000 years onwards, the same period that Homo sapiens spread across Europe and replaced the Neanderthal populations, the same period that Aurignacian tool culture displaced the comparatively archaic Neanderthal Mousterian technology, and the same period in which the Upper Paleolithic art began to flourish. Coincidence? Surely not. At Tsunghia, in the Vladimir Oblast of modern Russia, Several burials attributed to the Gravettian archaeological industry, which is often considered to be a more advanced industry than the Aurignacian, were uncovered. They possibly date from around 34,000 years ago onwards. The most significant of these burials is that of two children. They are buried 
with the tops of their heads opposite each other with their bodies laying away from each other. The bodies are covered in red ochre. The bodies are accompanied by a large amount of artefacts, far too large and notable to have not been placed there deliberately. They include beads made from ivory which were clearly part of jewellery and clothing items. There were also ivory spears. What does this mean? Well, it is not unusual to find burials of this nature all around Europe, so it would suggest that certain humans were being deliberately buried in very considerate funerals and large amounts of effort were going into them, suggesting that certain individuals had social status within their groups. It also demonstrates that humans were creating elaborate clothings and that this can be further justified by bone needles and shuttles being uncovered at archaeological sites that were very likely used for threading materials together, something that we cannot attribute to Neanderthal culture where it is believed that they just use hides like a blanket or a cloak. Another consideration is that the inclusion of grave goods would suggest that these populations believed in an afterlife of some sort, further enhancing the spiritual and religious debate. If we look at the more modern site of Goff's Cave, located at Cheddar Gorge in Somerset County in modern England, we can recognise signs of cut marks on the bone which demonstrate that cannibalistic practices were taking place, something that has come up over and over again throughout the podcast series. Interestingly, some have speculated that the act of cannibalism may not just have been for the necessity of feeding hunger, but that humans may have believed that by consuming the dead that you could acquire their strengths and powers. Undoubtedly, by the time of the agricultural revolutions, humans had developed very advanced and elaborate artistic and ritualistic practices. The The Origins of of Art art and Ritual It has been quite an intense episode, full of evidence and information. You could probably make an entire podcast series devoted to the subject of prehistoric art and ritual. This is quite exciting because it means that we are now entering periods for which there is a lot of evidence and for which we can start telling stories based on the evidence. We can dare to make more assumptions as further evidence will either support the assumption or render it incorrect, which is equally as helpful in ascertaining the truth. As more evidence is uncovered, it does tend to continually prove us wrong about the origins though. The origin of anything is particularly difficult to establish, if not impossible. Lake Ram is a crater in the Golan Heights. The lake is in modern-day Israel. A pebble was recovered near the lake in 1981 that showed evidence of an attempt to carve it. The pebble appears to have been carved to loosely resemble a female figure. It is not clear whether the carving was intentional or whether there was clear intention for it to resemble a female human. The pebble has been tephrochronologically dated to around 230,000 years ago. Tephrochronology is a form of dating 
which uses the evidence of volcanic eruptions and the ash layers deposited. If this is truly an example of an attempt to make a Venus figurine, then it would be by far the earliest example and would predate by almost five times any reference to Aurignacian behavioural advances in humanity. Some have even speculated that if it is an attempt to make a Venus figurine, it could have been the work of Homo neanderthalensis, or even a late form of Homo erectus. The pebble has been called the Venus of Berekhat Ram, and such is the seriousness with which it is taken. Next time, we will summarise the period that we have already covered, the period from the emergence of man to the dawn of civilization. It will be a very special episode, but I don't want you to feel like it is purely a summary. We will be uncovering new material in this podcast, so there will be new things to discover. So please don't dismiss it. It's a very good opportunity for us to summarise the Paleolithic period. And now we're moving into the Neolithic period, it seems like the right thing to do just to prepare ourselves to take a deep breath and make sure that we're ready for the next period. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast this week. It was a bit of a long one, but I hope that we crammed in as much as possible in relation to art and ritual. You could almost justify each subject, art and ritual, having their own podcast, but we didn't do that. We tried to do it all together because the two are interconnected, so it made sense. I've received a message this week through Facebook. We're always available on Facebook from William Scott Harkey, who said, thank you for the pod. I'm really enjoying it, listening while I'm on the go on Podcruncher. I didn't even know we were on Podcruncher, to be quite honest. The distribution list has got out of control and I'm all over the place. There's probably Martians listening to this podcast, for all I know. And then talking of places where the podcast is available, we got a message on Castbox from Eden Tosh, who said... Love this podcast, it's a smart layperson interpretation on history and even though I was mainly interested in the paleoanthropology part of the history, I will continue to listen as Chris gets more modern. Listen, I'll tell you what, the podcast might get more modern but don't hold your breath on me. Well, let me wrap up. That was it, that was the end of episode 13 and pretty much the end of the Paleolithic We're going to summarise next week, introduce a couple of new facts that we didn't cover throughout the first 13 podcasts, and then episode 15 and 16, it's going to be agriculture and farming. We're going to explore all those wonderful plants and animals that were domesticated by the human being in the Neolithic period. So something to look forward to, but next week, episode 14, the summary. Thanks a lot. Have a great week, everybody. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. 
Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the Support the Podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.